Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome back to the House of Pod. Hold it, hold it. Ooh, <laughs> I can keep going. No, don't. Stop it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll breathe in. Harmony. Oh, you're here. I need you here. Anyways, hi, I'm Kave. I'm Lizzie. And this is the House of Pod. I'm so sorry about that introduction. We're normally much, much more professional. Um, <laughs> we're a medical type podcast, and we talk about medical type things sometimes, sometimes not. Um, that was busy. much more professional. <laughs> yeah, I can switch to that gear, you know. So yeah. uh, you and I both to a, I think, pretty reasonable and safe uh, amount like beer. We've enjoyed the beer <laughs> together. Much of yeah. our much of our friendship has been, you know, based around sitting around and having beers. Beer fluenced, if you will. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, and within reason and within moderation, if your doctor says it's okay, beer is something, you know, you and I are cool with. Not in every situation, obviously. Yeah. There, there is that enough of a disclaimer. Did I did that cover us enough? With, uh don't drink and drive. Talk? Don't now drink and drive. Never, never do that. That's okay. about it. Yeah. So I have a fun fact for you. Yeah. What? Do you do you know where the oldest beer was found? Where the first beer was found? Do you know? Uh, based on many other conversations about food and utensils and writing and history and poetry, I would say Iran. Correct. <laughs> the journal Nature in 1992 found that the oldest traces of beer, or like real beer, like purposeful beer, was found in the Zagros Mountains of Iran. The very first beer. Now, why do I bring that up? Because you're Persian and you love beer. And I like to always educate you about all the cool things that we've done. Yeah. Um, and beer is one of them. You like beer? That's us. I bring it up now, though, 
because there is a brewery in Brooklyn and they sent me a beer and I am drinking that beer as we speak. Here, cheers. Cheers. Hold up your beer. We're having beer. Zoom camera. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's called Back Home Brewery. You can find them at Twitter and Instagram at Back Home Beer, at Back Home Beer. And they're a woman owned, first generation Iranian company. And they're making like, I don't, kind of Iranian style beers or like at least beers that they made back in Iran. Because I don't know if you know this, but Iranians, we do like beer. I, I know everyone expects us to be like sitting around on like magic carpets and like riding camels beerless. But no, we do those two things with beer. We thought we thought you had a hookah. Hookah. I don't like the hookah. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, do some, some Iranian guys are into that, but that's just that's like the, the sleazy sort of like the Middle Eastern club with like the banging music in the background. <laughs> yeah, that the hookah. That's not that's not yeah, one of my things. That's like Euro trash. That's not like a Persian. Yeah, yeah. But can you tell me how did the beer travel? Because this is something we talked about on the show. When you said the beer was coming, I'm like, hmm, A, that sounds maybe challenging legally because it's like beer across state lines and also yeah. bubble wise, fizz wise. I'm not going to go into the details because it just showed up at my place <laughs> packaged and I'm just going to accept that. Yeah. Um, and it's like, really like all, all great things. They just, they just show up. Yeah, exactly. It's in 2021. That's how things arrive at your house. They just right. arrive. Right. Right. And uh, it's really tasty. This is a sour beer. How do you mm. feel about sour beers? Let me ask you. I am not a fan. I have to say, um, I don't think of myself as super nitpicky on food and clothes and stuff, but beer, I'm, I really only like three or four different types, even though I'm an avid beer lover drinker. So I do not like sour beers are way too tart for me. It's like drinking vinegar to me. I have to say, I don't do sour beers very often. Uh, There's only a couple beers when I'm not drinking whiskey or if I I am drinking beer, that's typically not a sour beer, but I do like it. It's tasty. Uh, yeah. I don't think it's gonna be the main one that they uh, sell. I think they're gonna have some other ones that come out, but maybe eventually this one will make it into the lineup. Anyway, it's just really tasty. So, well, thank great. you, Back Home Beer, for the for this delicious beverage that you've sent our way. Yeah. If, if you guys out there have a uh, beer that you would like us to try, please send it our way. We will, just drop we'll, it off at the door. <laughs> yeah, we will happily take it. And speaking of alcohol, uh, today's guest is a hepatologist, Lizzie, a uh, GI slash hepatologist, a doctor not too dissimilar from ourselves. And her name is Dr. Lauren Nephew. And she's coming to talk to us about two papers that she has written recently. And they're really eye-opening. One is called Systemic Racism and Overcoming My COVID-19 Vaccine Hesitancy. And the second is Racial Gender and Socioeconomic Disparities in Liver Transplantation. So we're going to be talking about those things, particularly we got to talk about this vaccine hesitancy. Um, it's something we've talked about a lot, but this is an angle that neither you and I can provide. So she's awesome. Stay tuned. And as always, thank you, Nadim, for helping get our uh, shows out there to the masses. For those of you who ask, the music of the show all comes from us, the members of this show. And you can find our music at The Resurrection Men. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, or the YouTube channel, I think it's out there somewhere. And anyone else you want to thank Lizzie? No. Okay. Stay tuned and check out back home beer at back home beer at Twitter and Instagram. Delicious beers from Brooklyn. Thank you very much.
And welcome back. Today we have with us Dr. Lauren Nephew, transplant hepatologist and disparities researcher at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Thank you so much, Dr. Nephew, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited yeah. to be here. Thank you. Um, you wrote recently um, in The Lancet about your personal experience with vaccine hesitancy. And can you just tell us a little bit about that? Because obviously Kaveh and I have talked on this show about wanting to be stewards and we both have been vaccinated. We both are, you know, twice over now. And uh, we think it's our mission to just spread the gospel. But we know that there are people, a lot of nurses I've spoken to personally are hesitant. So you as a physician, as a black woman, will you tell us where you're coming from on your own personal, you know, path of hesitancy. Yeah. You know, it was, it was hard for me to kind of make a decision to get the vaccine, which I think was surprising to a lot, would be surprising to a lot of people. It wasn't something I would share. You know, I'm on a couple of text message groups with some of my colleagues and they would text and say, you know, oh, we, we can't wait for the vaccine to come out. Have you seen the schedule? We want to make sure we get signed up. And I'm like, hmm, okay. I just didn't respond. <laughs> um, and I just kind of would sit back and kind of listen to the conversation. And then I'm on a separate text message kind of chain with some Black female uh, colleagues that I went to med school with. We were all like, hmm, we're not sure about this vaccine. Maybe we're going to wait. And there was just kind of this dichotomy that I was seeing between you know, some of my colleagues at work and then some of my friends from medical school who were physicians and women of color. And I said, there's really something happening here that I think people don't really recognize. And I got this impression from listening to people that people thought vaccine hesitancy was just people who were perhaps less educated or people who were just lay folks. And I'm like, that's not it. That I, I talk to, you know, black physicians, black nurses, uh, you know, people I went to college with. A lot of us are concerned about this, and I think there's this kind of misconception. Certainly, not everybody is hesitant, but there certainly was a big group of folks that I was talking to who had some concern, and so I wanted to speak to that. That this was not just, you know, there were a lot of people who felt this way. Um, and there were a lot of good reasons to feel this way. This was not out of lack of knowledge. This was out of um, kind of generations and a, a history of kind of mistrust um, that I would argue was pretty well earned. Um, and so um, I, I wanted to speak to my experience because I thought that um, it wasn't unique and that there were other people who felt like I felt and that um, it may help bring some people along to hear that, hey, I went to medical school and I was still nervous. You know, this article that Lizzie is referring to, the eClinical Medicine, uh, which is published by The Lancet, it's, uh, this article is called Systemic Racism and Overcoming My COVID-19 Vaccine Hesitancy. In it, you talk about the structural racism and, and unequal distribution of the social determinants that, that have led us to this, this point. But for our listeners who probably don't know much about things like the Tuskegee experiment, could you, uh, and I know there's more than we could cover in <laughs> one episode of the yeah. show, much <laughs> less one soundbite from you, but could you tell people a little bit about these, about the systemic racism 
that you feel exists and and what historically has led to this hesitancy? Yeah, I, I, I think that that's an important point because, you know, my kind of conceptual framework, and it's not, I won't say my, right? It's not like I came up with this on my own. There's a lot of <laughs> folks who think about um, disparities and disease this way, um, that there's nothing unique about the COVID virus that makes it jump into, you know, brown and black bodies, right? I mean, there is something that is happening that's bigger than that. It's that the COVID, you know, COVID can really care less about what color you are. Um, but how do you get these comorbidities? How do you get into situations where you've got to work in grocery stores and you've got to live in a house with multiple generations? How do right. you um, become a frontline worker who can't really um, distance themselves? How do you get into those situations? And um, systemic racism, if you kind of back all the way up for lack of opportunities and lack of education and living in food deserts, you can kind of see how these downstream sequelae that make COVID happy <laughs> um, and give it a nice place to kind of to, to latch on to how these situations can develop. So for me, this was an opportunity to not only kind of talk about my fear around the COVID vaccine, but to also have people reflect on why we have this disparity in um, COVID outcomes and in COVID prevalence. And, you know, to really think about, you know, this is not about the virus. This is about systems that have been set in play for a long time. Right. Um, and so when you think about distrust, kind of a separate kind of, um, you know, segue, um, I think that kind of leads you into this kind of understanding of, you know, if you've kind of grown and lived and worked and um, tried to survive in this system, um, that you may have some distrust in it. Um, yeah. And it's not just based on the awful Tuskegee syphilis experiment where just as recently as 1972, so this is not something that happened like in 1812, right? <laughs> like this is something that just yeah. finished um, where men were not treated for their syphilis so we could watch them die a horrible death and learn about it. Um, and what's so awful is that Tuskegee is the experiment that we know most about, but there's so many more. And if you want to delve into the kind of cruel history of experimentation on black and brown bodies and medical apartheid, it's probably a good book to read, but that's a pretty depressing discussion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of things that happened in the past, but there's lots of things happening right now Yeah. Um, yeah. that make people like me a little bit nervous when you say you want to stick a needle in my arm and, and put some mRNA into my right. blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a great point. Like you're saying, there's no difference between black bodies and brown bodies is that there isn't a genetic predisposition, predisposition necessarily for COVID or a reaction to the COVID vaccine. It's two things, right? It's this historical legacy of institutional racism where people are probably more obese among these communities because they are eating there's a few food insecurity, like you said, there's no green food, there's no fresh food, they're going to, you know, whatever, like terrible stores where they're just eating like fast foods. And and I, the second part is probably also that it's been indoctrinated for a lot of this population to not seek medical treatment and what you're saying to not trust it. So like, even if they were to get sick, not that we have a cure for COVID, but we have supportive care 
that they're not going to go seek medical treatment because of the same reasons for hesitancy, right? So it's right. not genetic. You got to get off work to go in. You've right. got to pay a copay. You got to find a babysitter. You got to get a ride. You got to <laughs> have insurance. Right. There's a lot of barriers to getting care. Um, beyond just distrust, you know, yeah. uh, and I always, you know, I have to kind of qualify it that if, you know, if there's 36 or 37% of Black uh, persons who had distrust in the vaccine, according to, I think, the Kaiser's December numbers, and I think there's some updated January numbers that might be a little bit better, that means that there's 70% of Black folks who aren't hesitant, right? So, there's a lot of people who are ready and willing to get this vaccine. And so trying to figure out how to get it to them is important. We got to figure out how to get that 36% down. Um, but there's a lot of people of color, a lot of people, you know, just in the country who just want to get this thing done and over with. I want to get to that. I want to get to that part of it, how, what we can do. But before we, we get there, I, I want to know more about your particular uh, hesitation regarding the vaccine because you have clearly the background to understand it better than the vast majority of the population. Did you have a fear that it wasn't tested on, on or, or that it was only tested in very specific communities? Did you have a of a fear that there could be some effect that they just didn't mention or look for in African American communities? Was there a particular fear about the vaccine? My biggest concern was that it got done so fast. I, you know, I'm a scientist and I, you know, it, just trying to get anything done just takes time. <laughs> and I'm like, how is it that they got this vaccine done so quickly? So that made me nervous. And to be quite frank, I was also nervous that it got done quickly under the Trump administration, which has not been... Um, very trustworthy, in my opinion, in terms of their facts that they release about quite about anything, honestly. So for me, it was the speed with which the vaccine was created and under the administration that it was created that gave me a sense of, wait a minute. And so I had to do a lot of digging to try to understand how it was that Pfizer got this done so fast, how it was that Project Warp Speed. Project Warp Speed, they really need to rename that, it's right? It's a terrible name. It's, it's a, a terrible, terrible name. name. Who wants Project, Project Warp Haphazard. Speed? <laughs> <laughs> Project, like, I just got this done, like, you know. Uh, it's smart. like Project, yeah, Project <laughs> Shitty Job. It's yeah. like such a terrible Project name. Project Overnighter. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was terrible, right? right, right. Uh, so I, I did a lot of listening to the Pfizer folks to hear how it was that they got this done so quickly. Right. Um, and I had to do a lot of data digging because I felt like, you know, the facts that we were getting from, you know, Dr. Fauci could, was he saying everything he wanted to say? Was sure. Trump kind of curtailing right. him? Right. And so I felt very much like I had to do a lot of digging myself. I couldn't just trust what was being delivered to me. And right. I had to understand the time frame. So those were my two kind of biggest hangups, I think, that sure. made me kind of say, uh. then I also didn't know a lot about mRNA technology, quite frankly. And so I had to kind of figure that out and get to some comfort level with that. The speed of it, I do think, you know, so many people, not just people of color, I think there were so many people 
in the country in the world that had doubt about that. So I, I don't actually think that's a very, you know, unique demographic kind of driven identity no. driven yeah. um, delay. I think that's uh, just a completely nationwide, global wide, right? Would you agree with that? I would completely agree with that. I think, yeah. um, you know, different populations have different reasons for hesitancy. And I think some of the data suggests that Black persons were very nervous about side effects, very nervous about vaccines in general. I mean, this isn't new, you know, in terms of, you know, Black patients are less likely to get the flu vaccine. So this isn't kind of like a new hesitancy. Yeah. Um, so different groups, you know, are, are rural populations. I live in Indiana, so they have a whole different reason for vaccine hesitancy than Black patients. Um, the Kaiser Foundation published that Republicans actually were more hesitant than Black patients. Their hesitancy rate was 47% compared to 36% in Black patients. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's lots of different groups that have hesitancy around vaccines and they all kind of have different reasons. And if we're in the medical community are going to deal with that, we're going to have to kind of individually identify what the reasons are for each group and try yeah. to, you know, well, one that I definitely understand is the hesitancy under the Trump administration. Um, you know, Lizzie, all in on Trump, but even on that. <laughs> but, no. uh, you know, we that that I definitely understand. But I, I always did have a, a faith. And this is probably a bit of my privilege, I guess, because I always had a faith in the people in the medical community that was that were examining this. I always felt, okay, we're going to be, if we're given the data, if we're able to see it, if there's any transparency, the medical community is going to pour through this. And this is what we told to a lot of our listeners. And when we went on other shows to talk about it, this is one of the things that Lizzie and I would talk about a lot, which is that, yeah, there's a lot of, this is happening very quickly. You know, if you throw enough money and you throw enough manpower, these things can happen very quickly. And the data is there for us to see and it looks good and we were able to see the data and reassure people regarding the the speed but there is a bit of it that you know i also um i had a certain amount of faith you know that that i didn't experience the systemic stuff that you right. might have experienced that, right. that and your like, faith is not. built on your experience right i mean you've had experience with the healthcare system that allow you to have that type of faith and so you, your faith is reasonably um, you know, you, you ha it's reasonable. Yeah. And right. I think many of us have had experiences with the healthcare system, even myself as a physician, I've had experiences that make me question um, really um, the intentions of people who are treating me. And so I think- Can you, can you that, give us an example? You know, it's, it's so hard to- There's uh, so many, I'm sure. The, well, not even, it's so hard to kind of- um, really explain a particular situation. I, I felt kind of the most um, vulnerable and the least heard and the most ignored when I was uh, giving birth to one of my children. I don't, I won't say which one, because then you'll figure out what hospital I was at, right? But, right, right. Um, but don't um, listen. By the way, nobody listens to the show. There's like <gasps> three that hurts people, my feelings, the, three people, and that's it. And none of them are in Indiana. Just so you know, right. none of them. <laughs> One of them is my sister and two are his parents. So, <laughs> well, I Just want your kidding. parents to figure it out. Just kidding. Um, but no, I, I felt, you know, when I was delivering my, uh, my baby that I, even as a physician, I was a physician at the time and I kept 
trying to explain that I thought I was having kind of heavier bleeding and I thought was reasonable. And I'm kind of explaining this as a physician. Um, you would think that somebody might think that I have a reasonable assessment of what's excessively. Especially <laughs> um, as a GI doctor. Yeah, we, we know blood. Right, exactly. And I'm used to seeing a lot of blood. It doesn't scare me. I'm a hepatologist. I see yeah. variceal bleeding. Uh, but anyway, nobody would listen to me. And I'm just like, is this really happening to me? And I'm talking to nurses and I'm and multiple nurses are telling me this is normal. You're just a nervous mom. I'm like, I'm a nervous mom physician though. I'm telling you. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was just, so it, it's, it's these experiences that you that happen frequently where you're, um, you're just disregarded and nobody hears you and people don't believe you and they don't think you're having pain. They don't think you're bleeding. They don't think you're really short of breath. And it's just uh, exhausting, um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, and it, it's, uh, it wears on you. Um, yeah. These things yeah. are happening now to me, to my mother, um, to, to, to Susan Moore. Well, that's a whole nother thing that we could delve into, um, who was a physician who, um, who, who uh, did a video recording and posted it on social media um, that she was having a racist experience at our, at our institution and subsequently died a couple of weeks later. Um, and it became a really big kind of story. Um, but um, she was a physician and she said, you know, I'm having this, this, this experience here, um, a racist experience. And so these things are happening now. Um, and I think you just have to believe people and acknowledge um, that the reasonable people feel this way um, and, and for, for reasons that are um, past and present. For that particular experience, because it was at your institution, do you feel like there's been any soul searching because of it? Do you feel that there's been some discussion at least since that's happened? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think this was a big um, eye opener for the institution. It's unfortunate that um, something like this had to happen, um, but uh, her experience at our institution is undergoing um, a formal review um, so that um, by external parties so that the institution can figure out how to grow from that because it's not even about culpability. It's really for me about a fellow colleague um, being fearful and saying that she was having an awful experience at my hospital. And right. No matter you know the end game, that's not okay, um, and we have to understand um, what her experience was and how we can keep that from ever ever happening again. Um, and yeah. So there is a lot of soul searching that's going on, and um, I'm happy about that. Yeah, across the country, I think as well. I hope. Yeah. Um, so for me again, I th like Kave said, I had faith in the system and the talking heads that were coming out of it, Fauci in particular. Um, I know he was stymied to some extent, but I, I felt like he, when he spoke, though it was rare and brief, it was the truth, right? So I did have confidence. And again, I'm coming from a place and generations of, to some extent, privilege. Um, you know, so I didn't, I had a little bit of hesitancy just because it felt like the first time. And, you know, yeah. anytime you take the first medicine for the first time, everyone has hesitancy. But when I could sign up, I did again, I'm coming from a different place. Um, but how would you recommend to the government, to your hospital, to your community, if you have a pedestal, how do we fix this? Because I, I was sort of hoping 
that among the CDC recommendations behind like frontline workers and nursing home people and those over 75, that maybe we would just put on that list people of color to be vaccinated first, to give them the opportunity. You know, it's like the same concept of affirmative action. Like you need to give people who've been oppressed for so long a little bit of a, a boost to get any sort of playing fields to be leveled. So I was sort of rooting for that in the well, CDC I mean, guidelines. Black and, and, and Latino and Latinx patients are, you know, they're at such high risk you know, because yeah, right. of their jobs right, right. and their comorbidity. You frankly could just say, we're prioritizing these groups because of risk. We're prioritizing right. these neighborhoods, these zip codes, however they wanted to do it. I think that would have gone a long way um, to building some um, trust that this vaccine, we really want to try to do the best to reach the populations who are at higher risk, highest risk first. Um, it doesn't seem like that's quite happened, although different states are doing different things. You know, New York has opened up a bunch of vaccination centers in Harlem, and so different states are kind of operating very differently about how they um, get to various communities. So it'll be interesting to see um, how this rolls out. Um, I think, um, and because that hasn't happened as a kind of national level, as a mandate that we really want to target communities of color necessarily, I think um, some of the things we could probably consider doing is really um, sending out trusted messengers. I think that um, the administration, the system is not a trusted messenger for some patients of color. Um, and patients really just universally have more trust in their providers. And so I think that providers need to be sending out letters, calling and telling people, hey, you know what? Um, we've looked at this data. You, this is, we think that this is good for our patients with end-stage liver disease. We think this is good for our patients with, you know, hepatitis C. Um, we think that, I think this is good for you, signed Lauren Nephew. Um, because I have so many patients who are, you know, calling me, asking me, Dr. Nephew, should I take the vaccine? Doctor, I'm like, yes, you should take the vaccine. <laughs> um, and so um, I, I think people want to hear from their doctor. They don't want right. to hear from Fauci. They don't want to hear from, they want to hear from their doctor. So I think um, trusted messengers in people's positions and communities of color, there's a lot of trust in some, uh, in some ways there's a lot of trust in um, the black church. Mm -hmm. and yeah. So I think that that is going to be an avenue that we have to, have to, have to utilize, um, in terms of having pastors speak out, um, having vaccination sites at churches. Um, and then there's a lot of community organizations that have built networks with, um, the black and Latino community that need to be involved. Um, you know, NAACP, Urban League, um, and so I know that Pfizer has collaborations with many of these organizations and it's working to try to leverage distribution using some of these groups. So I think working trusted messengers are going to be important because the messengers currently are not very trusted. Yeah. You know, maybe it's just because I'm cynical or I'm paranoid, but I feel like if I was in one of those communities and they were like, we're sending you the vaccine first. Because I'd be like, what are you doing? Testing it on us? I don't want that. I was like, that might just be my paranoia, but that's kind of how I would have reacted. No, that came on. I, that I saw some of that on my Facebook kind of, you know, community of people saying, well, we don't want to take it first. So they're trying to experiment on us. Yeah. And then you hear the other folks saying, well, 
we we have you know higher rates of death why aren't we getting it first so there's you're never going to make everybody happy but i think providing the opportunity for people to get it even if they didn't take it um probably would go a long way yeah, no, yeah, I agree. And you had both vaccines at this point. I you've had, had, both, I had <laughs> both vaccines. I know. I was just thinking we haven't made it clear yet. We're talking about hesitancy, and then you just said you encourage your patients to get it. But let's let our listeners know I you got can, it. You were hesitant, but hesitant doesn't mean unwilling, right? You came no, around. I, I, I turned around. I, no. I had a you know I had my come to Jesus moment where I said I cannot. Um, I, I read the science. Um, I listened to some great kind of, you know, webinars, um, about how they got the vaccine developed so quickly that gave me some comfort. I said, okay, that makes sense. Money makes sense. Dollars make sense. They started mm-hmm. kind of, yeah. you know, um, before they even, um, had approval, they were making vaccine before yeah. they even, you know, were done with phase one, they were putting community sites in place so that they were doing things that they would never do before um, to kind of get this going. And so, okay, I was like, okay, that makes sense to me. That speaks. (laughs) What what helped me was that there was just so much of the disease out there that it became so easy to test. Like part of it was it's so easy to find subjects and it was so easy to go through the numbers of who got and who didn't because it's so ubiquitous and so out there. I have to say, if it was like a political tool, I don't, I don't think I would have taken the vaccine myself if it had been before the election. I'm pretty convinced of that. If people were using it, like if Trump was campaigning in November, you know, in October, we have a vaccine, take it, it's a cure, you know, the cure for COVID and that we can move past it. It'll be, it's a miracle. It'll go away like a miracle. I don't think I would have taken it because I don't think I would have trusted that path. would have made me nervous. Yeah, no um, matter who won, though, if it was Biden <laughs> or Trump, after November 3rd, I was open to taking it. I just, if it was before, I thought it would be, its powers would be used for evil. No, I, I hear that. I hear that. So Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, no, I came around, like I said, I things started making sense to me. And I looked at all the table ones and I said, okay, there's people that look like me in these studies that, you know, they're, <laughs> Um, these, you know, I looked at all the data and I said, okay, this, this makes sense. And so, um, I came around and I, I can't say that I always thought I'd get the vaccine, but I, I said, you know, I probably will just wait. And out on my colleagues I'll, first. No, I yeah, understand that. I'll well, getting like eight months in or so, um, right. it, it's too dangerous and the data looked good and I came yeah. around, so I've gotten both. So to change uh, the subject a little bit, you know, we're GI doctors. And actually, I think you're the first GI doctor we've had in a long time. I think we've only ever had one other episode with GI doctors in it. Um, So so this is. Well, I'm honored. Yeah, yeah. That says a lot about you. So um, you also wrote a paper in, in the ASLD the American Association for Study of Liver Disease, in its review article called Racial, Gender, and Socioeconomic Disparities in Liver Transplantation. Um, and in it, you describe that there are discrepancies it, ra- between racial and ethnic minorities in rates of getting liver transplantation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, this was, you know, this was a labor of love, I will say. I don't know if you've written a review article, but it is intense. (laughs) Um, There's lots of data that kind of comb through and we really wanted to highlight 
kind of disparities along the care kind of continuum for transplant. Because I think a lot of people think that when we adopted the MELD score, so the model for end-stage liver disease score in 2002, that all disparities just melted away. These are lab tests, it's objective, we put the number in, you get the score out, you get transplanted, bing bing, and everything is fair. And that's just not the case. Um, unfortunately, um, there are a lot of things that happen before you get on the list and a lot of things that happen after you get on the list. And so there's a lot of disparities in access um, that have nothing to do with the MELT score in terms of um, getting referred for liver transplant when you meet criteria. Um, there are barriers even once you get referred um, for having social support to get through transplant evaluation, for having not having too many comorbidities to get the transplant evaluation, um, to having opportunities for living donor liver transplantation. So um, we really wanted to kind of highlight that while the MELT score has been um, amazing at making transplant equitable once people have gotten listed for racial disparities, not so much for women, but for racial disparities, um, there are still barriers to accessing transplant and there are still some evidence of disparities after transplant in terms of graft survival that are important. And so um, we can't just kind of wash our hands and say, you know, we've got this great score and all is well. Um, and so we wanted to kind of talk about it along the care continuum. Well, you know, it's really important. It was, it's really eye-opening. I mean, I think I sort of had a feeling <laughs> that was the case, but <laughs> it it's good to have it written out and have someone review it. So thank you for doing that. Well, uh, we should close up now. We've been going for a lot longer than we were planning to keep you. So sorry about that. And thank you for coming on and, and talking oh, so much you. with us. We really appreciate it. Do you have anything to plug? Can we direct people somewhere for you that they can read more about the stuff you've written? Yeah, please check me out on Twitter. Um, I'm Lauren Nephew, MD, N-E-P-H-E-W, like niece nephew. Um, and I'm always posting something about not just disparities in liver diseases, but somebody who does health disparities research. There's a lot of parallels in maternal fetal medicine and in other cancer um, disparities. So check me out there. Um, if you're interested in vaccine hesitancy, read uh, my commentary in eClinical Medicine um, by The Lancet. You can kind of Google and find that and take a look at our review looking at disparities in the continuum of care and liver transplantation, myself and Marina Serper. Cool. Thank you. So we'll, how, we'll how, much, how much more alcohol have you seen? How much more alcohol liver disease have you seen during COVID? It is outrageous. Outrageous, right? <laughs> outrageous. It's right. out of pocket. Right. At least like before when you would go out, like the, the high cost of the drink might like prohibit you or the fact that you have to get home might stop you from drinking, but now there's just no boundaries, right? There's no boundaries and people don't even realize it. People are coming in with alcoholic hepatitis. Like, I don't know. I was just drinking and watching video games. Next thing I know is yellow. It's, it's like, right. I don't even, it's just COVID. <laughs> this is just who I am during COVID. No, right? it, it's been, it's been crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. We really thank appreciate you it. Guys. Yeah. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified healthcare provider for your specific healthcare needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. And I'm alive and I want to stay.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.